passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. <laughs> get it? With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because you know if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Big thanks to NASCAR for sponsoring this episode of Pass Gas. Netflix's newest docuseries, NASCAR Full Speed, follows drivers as they battle for one of the biggest titles in all of motorsports during the 2023 NASCAR playoffs. Get an in-depth look at who these drivers are off the track and how they and their teams navigate the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of competing for a championship at the world's highest level of stock car racing. After all, the race to the finish is just the beginning. Watch NASCAR full speed on Netflix to catch up on the characters, competition, and chaos that define the 2023 championship before NASCAR heads to Atlanta this Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Fox. By the time he had reached the starting line at the inaugural Belgian Grand Prix in 1925, Antonio Ascari was a living legend. He was already referred to as Garibaldino after a 19th century Italian famous for running the French and Austrians out of Italy. This was due to his penchant for dominating Italian races, like the previous year's Grand Prix at Monza, when race officials begged Alfa Romeo to order Ascari to slow down and even threatened to disqualify him if he didn't. It would be no different in Belgium. After the green flag had waved, Ascari owned the race. And even though he must have known his lead was insurmountable, a simple victory wasn't Antonio's style. He won the first Belgian Grand Prix by a whopping 22 minutes. How did Antonio Ascari come to be one of the most respected drivers of the era? How did his son Alberto not only live up to his father's legacy, but become a legend in his own right? And how would their nearly symmetrical lives, both in glory and in tragedy, 
leave a lasting impact on motorsport. Today on Pass Gas, it's the story of the Ascari family. Pass Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Ascari. Racing is Ascari. Ah, Ascari. Ascari to me? Not. 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 (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined, as always, by my two co-hosts, James Pumphrey. Oh, hey, what's up, y'all? Let's get all uh, into cars. And Joe (laughs) Weber. What's up, Wink Wink Nation? Look at the shirts. Wink Wink Nation. Speaking of Wink Wink Nation, we have new, for the first time ever, Pass Mm -hmm. Gas apparel and stickers. We've got this Wink Wink Nation shirt with a... European-inspired Japanese roadster that is not a Mazda Miata. <laughs> mm-hmm. We also have a sticker pack, uh, one-off donut, hand-drawn logo kind of thing, Wink Wink Nation sticker, Wink Wink Nation poster, pass gas or cash sticker. I love that one. Mm-hmm. That one was like a last-minute a dish, which I really, really enjoy. Go to donutmedia.com, get yourself some if you want to support the show. Let everyone know that you like this podcast uh, and look good while doing it. Yeah, well said. How are you guys doing this week? Great. Yeah, I'm doing really well. I haven't caught up in a while. I've been watching a horror movie every night in bed. <laughs> really? Yes. What, what, what you been watching? Uh, I watched Cargo, which is good. Not it's an Australian with one with the guy who played the Hobbit, Tim, from the original Office. Oh, I saw that one. Yeah, Zombies? Good. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's a that's a really that's good one. It's a really good take on a zombie yeah. movie. It's kind of sad. Uh, last night I started watching Run, Rabbit, Run, but I got sweepy, so I'll finish that tonight. Mm-hmm. With Shiv? With Shiv from uh, Succession. Succession is in it. And then what else did I watch? I watched Sick, which is good. It's like a COVID horror hmm. movie. That's one of my favorite. Oh, I've heard of that one. It's yeah. one of my slasher. favorite tropes in horror movies when someone goes, I don't feel so good. And yeah. then like something j- busts out of their chest or something. Just yeah, this has nothing to do with it. It's a slasher movie ta- that takes mm. place during quarantine. Oh, the slasher is sick. Yeah, No, the sick, sick is in the mind. COVID. Oh. It's a I'll COVID it slasher movie. Oh. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Pretty good. It's a good little romp. Mm-hmm. You know, not groundbreaking, mm-hmm. but, you know, did a good job. My question not is, annoying. how many tomatoes? How many tomatoes? Are you throwing at the screen? Oh, uh, 88%. Percent. So James. good tomatoes. You're throwing good tomatoes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good tomatoes. Have you seen, it's a film by Mike, Mike Flanagan. Uh, I think you might like, it's in the same, Hush. It's called Hush. Hush. Uh, it's like a slash movie where this deaf woman is in the oh, house. Oh, yeah. I've seen this movie. Yeah. That one's sick. Scary oh. guy face. Yeah, we like a scary guy face. Yeah. yeah. That's a great movie. Mike and Flanagan. shouts to the a deaf scatty. community. Shouts to all our deaf listeners. Speaking of a scatty movie. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about a scary guy. <laughs> yeah, a scary Antonio, a scary. A couple of scary guys. Yeah, um, a scary racing family. I just want, circling back to the intro, Garibaldinos yeah. was a, a name that they gave to macho race car drivers in Italy uh, that kind of embodied this lifestyle of uh, playboy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're super charismatic. They're kind of like national heroes. Driving out foreigners. I don't think that was a big part of it, but it was. Well, it's like, you get out of here, foreigners. Yeah, I'm sure there's like. nothing, you know, connected to events that would happen later in, in Italy's history to that nickname. Oh, yeah. Italy was kind of bad during that time. 
Yeah, they invented fascism. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so Antonio Ascari was born on September 15th, 1888, in a small village near the border of Veneto and the Lombardy regions of northern Italy. You know where that's at? Uh, yeah. Right. I have a family, maybe like cousins twice removed or something, that live up in the Lombardy region. That's cool. Oh, I love Vince Lombardi. <laughs> oh, title town, huh? Mm-hmm. While little is known about Antonio's childhood, his journey to becoming the racing legend he is today began around the turn of the century when Antonio's father moved the Ascari family to Milan. In the early 1900s, auto manufacturers and coach builders were popping up all over the city, including companies like Alfa Romeo and Isotto Francini. Milan would soon prove to be teeming with top motor racing talent as well. Legend has it that during Antonio's first few years in Milan, he was expelled from school for pulling a prank, Joe, which led him to a job at a local blacksmith forge working. It's just a prank, bro. It's, it's just, just a, a prank. prank. I just brought it's a, a horse up to the principal's <laughs> office. I just put a horse in his it's office. A it's a prank, dude. It's a prank. Anyway, prank, he got prank. a job. Chill, chill, chill. It's a prank. At this forge. Chill, chill, chill. It's a prank. I just tried on... to steal his phone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I just stabbed him. Um, yeah, so he got a job uh, working on racing bicycles. Uh, he moved on to work as a mechanic for the Devecchi Auto Manufacturing Group in his late teens. While working at Devecchi, Antonio met Ugo Silvocci, who had a, the impressive resume of driver, chief mechanic, and head of testing for Devecchi's racing division. Savocci would become a mentor and close friend to Antonio, and he was the catalyst for Antonio's entire racing career. So very important guy, this Ugo Savocci. In 1911, Savocci persuaded Antonio to enter his first race and even arranged for him to drive a Devecchi touring car. Sources are a bit unclear on the outcome of this race, but it would be another eight long years until Antonio found himself racing again. So probably not great results. For probably him. not. No. Antonio spent that time working for aircraft repair firm Falco during World War I, and then by the end of the war, he was married with two children, including his son and future Formula One legend Alberto. And we don't know what the other kid is named. Uh, Frank. <laughs> Frankie. Frank Escari. A spooky. A spooky. <laughs> spooky. 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 After the war, Antonio's life led him back to cars. He ran an Alfa Romeo dealership in Milan between 1918 and 1919. <laughs> between almost then, a whole year. Almost a whole year. <laughs> and not too long after, he found himself at the starting line once again. On October 15, 1919, Antonio arrived trackside at the Parma Poggio de Bergetta hill climb, a high-profile 30-mile race that took place on graveled switchbacks in the hills just outside of Parma. That sounds sick. That's where the hard cheese is made. Mmm! <laughs> Yum! You know the Italian government? You know how the U.S. has gold reserves? They got mm-hmm. cheese reserves? They have Parmesan reserves. How oh. cute. Yeah. That's quaint. I have an idea for a heist. Yeah, go steal all the... Bunch Say, of less. <laughs> Say less. Say less. I mean... Gonna make some eggplant parm. <laughs> <laughs> Not the right cheese, but I like the idea. Oh. Antonio, however, arrived without a car. 
And it wasn't until the Fiat team made a last-minute withdrawal that he found himself on grid. After their withdrawal, Antonio convinced Fiat to sell them the S57-13B they had planned to enter the race with. Nice. Originally built for the 1914 French Grand Prix, the S57's 4.5-liter four-cylinder engine made 135 horsepower and could propel the long and narrow open-wheeled racer to a top speed of 91 miles the, per hour. Those that's are, a really weird spec. Those for are some engine. massive cylinders. Yeah. Those are big, a big old coffee big can. Yeah. That's Ooh. over a liter Blah. per cylinder. Yeah. So imagine Blah. four liters of Fago. Yeah, I am. I always change. imagine that's that. how much air they're pushing through that engine every yeah. revolution. Yeah. Whether Antonio showed up that day with the intention to watch and made an impulsive decision or showed up hoping to buy a car to enter with is unknown. But stars had aligned and a series of events had been set into motion for the Ascari family to leave their undeniable mark on motorsport. That's like when you go to the, in my case, like a guitar center or something. It's yeah. like, I'm just going to look. I want to uh-huh. see what they got. Yeah. And then you're Oh, let me noodle a little bit. Let me noodle a little bit. And then the president of Capitol Records yeah. shows up <laughs> and he's like, hey. You are the best Gitbox mm. player I've ever seen. He's like, I was just in here to buy a spy cam, but I want to sign you right yeah. now. Yeah, please, please, please be the new Nirvana. <laughs> <laughs> Next thing you know, you're the lead singer in Nickelback for eight years. What were you pointing at me before about? Oh, I, w- I would love some eggplant. Or oh, he wants you to egg- make him eggplant. Oh, you want? Okay, yeah. so here. Yeah, remember we talked about you giving hey. me a basket of stuff? Uh-huh. It's just going to be all the stuff to make eggplant uh-huh. parmesan. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to give you gelatin. What's yeah. your cousin's restaurant in Milwaukee called? Yeah, if you guys live in Milwaukee, go to Sala. It's right by the UWM oh campus. Uh, delicious Sicilian food. So good. Please go there. Support the, the restaurant. Anyway. In his first race in eight years, Antonio dominated. Not only did he win, but he broke the course record by nearly four minutes and finished five and a half minutes ahead of second. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. Things are different back then. Yeah. Man. People think it's because the guy overslept at the halftime. Now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's like a 4.5 liter inline four versus like a 30 liter V12. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the guy drank too much champagne yeah. Yeah, yeah. at the mid race break. Ah, uh, my roasted chicken wasn't quite done, <laughs> so I didn't get off the starting line in time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, my they team. They stopped to like adopt a puppy halfway through the race. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My team took too long to loom my travel rug. Yeah. This boy that I picked up uh, <laughs> wasn't. A good mechanic, so it took him longer. Anyway. Another legend also made his major racing debut that day. A man who would play a major hand in cementing the Ascari name in motorsport history. A little evil Italian man. <laughs> who you may have heard of. With a zigzaggy mustache. With a zigzaggy mustache who wears purple overalls <laughs> and a yellow shirt. <laughs> Mr. Enzo Ferrari. Mm. Antonio was hooked on racing. He entered his second race at the Copa della Consuma Hill Climb on October 26th, a mere 11 days after his victory at Parma Poggio. Okay, so these are both hill climbs. So he's not racing like heads up with people. It's, it's a like time, time track, yeah. hill climb, much like Pikes Peak, which just happened. Uh, start at the bottom of the hill, drive to the top of the hill. Whoever does it the fastest wins. Bang, bang, boom. Simple. Simple. 
Antonio dominated again, finishing the roughly 9.5-mile course nearly two minutes ahead of second. That's insane, dude. As a result, the previously unknown 31-year-old driver seemed poised to take the Italian racing circuit by storm. 31, huh? That's old. There's still time. Old AF. Not for me. (laughs) On November 20th, or Joe. Just for you. Just for me. One Just year. One year for you to I've take got the one racing. One year to take the Italian racing circuit by storm. <laughs> You're going to Italy. I, I am, and I'll be close to the Italian border. So you should do it. Do it. You should take it by I'm storm. Take Just it saying. by storm. I think I'll, it's probably a pretty good career move to take the Italian racing. I think so. By storm. I think you should. Yeah. I need a break. We'll miss you. Yeah. On November 23rd, Antonio arrived at his third major race, the Targa Florio, a 63-mile race in the mountains of Sicily. Conditions were less than ideal. The cool autumn weather had brought rain and snow to the course the night before, and when Antonio set off, the road was perilously slick. Shortly into the race, Antonio's S57 began to slide while navigating a turn. Antonio and his riding mechanic, riding mechanic, it's a guy it's who like rides a fourteen-year-old yeah. boy who just crawls around the car while you're driving. He's actually a terrier <laughs> yeah, with a cool with a set of glasses, yeah, and a scarf. So Antonio and his riding mechanic ran off the track and down into a ravine, making them the twelfth and last car to retire out of a field of only twenty-one cars. The two of them would fortunately come away from the crash without major injuries. That's a movie that we can make. Like a dog that rides in race a cars. A dog mechanic. Yeah. Yeah. Like Benji meets Furious George. Meets uh, Wishbone. Yeah. Meets. It's, it's like Air Bud, but Oil Bud. Oil Bud. Oil Bud. Nice. Who's it's, playing Oil Bud? Let's cast this movie. Uh, about eight dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're all going to die. If we shoot it in China, we don't have to be nice to them. <laughs> God. Despite the crash at Targa Florio, Antonio's raw talent was undeniable. And in 19... Yeah, all cool people crash. And in 1920, the Alfa Romeo racing team would offer him a seat. At Alfa, Antonio would soon find himself teammates with friend and mentor Ugo Savocci, as well as fellow future legends Giuseppe Campari and Enzo Ferrari. Mm, I want a Campari on the rocks now. I want a Ferrari. (laughs) (laughs) we'll be right back with more of this story but first a word from our sponsors big thanks to nascar for sponsoring this episode of pass gas netflix's newest docuseries nascar full speed follows drivers as they battle for one of the biggest titles in all of motorsports during the 2023 nascar playoffs get an in-depth look at who these drivers are off the track and how they and their teams navigate the physical, mental, and emotional challenges of competing for a championship at the world's highest level of stock car racing. After all, the race to the finish is just the beginning. Watch NASCAR full speed on Netflix to catch up on the characters, competition, and chaos that define the 2023 championship before NASCAR heads to Atlanta this Sunday, February 25th at 3 p.m. Eastern time on Fox. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do 
is Angie that? And find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. <laughs> Get it? With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Antonio's racing career didn't exactly get off to an auspicious start. He posted no notable performances in his first year and participated in only a few events during his second with his only victory in either year coming at the 1921 Parmapoggio Hill Climb. Antonio's absences on the grid during these early years might have been by design on Alpha's part, as Antonio was making them money elsewhere. His dealership in Milan was so successful that Alpha made him concessionaire, the sole dealer for Alfa Romeo vehicles for the entire Lombardy region in 1920. Wow. During this time, he also consulted on the development of Alpha's ES Sport, and evolution of the 1914-2030 HPE road car that we all know and love, right, guys? Uh, that would serve as a platform to build road course racers on. Antonio began racing regularly again in 1922 and would claim his first victory from behind the wheel of an ES Sport on the Copa del Garda. So he's racing the car that he helped develop. That's awesome. Antonio would also get a class win and overall fourth at the Targa Florio, the same race where he experienced his first crash, beating out teammates Savocci, Campari, and Ferrari, who finished 9th, 11th, and 16th, respectively. The reason Enzo became a manufacturer. Yeah. yeah Murray, uh, I uh, I'm a second. Uh, actually, Enzo, you're 16th. 16th. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but 16th is the second second. <laughs> But the Targo Florio would soon prove once again to be Antonio's Achilles heel. At the 1923 running of Targo Florio, Antonio seemed all but certain to take the win. He had some heat. Antonio had gotten out to a substantial lead and had set a blistering pace behind the wheel of Alpha's new RLTF 3.0 or RLTF 3, <laughs> a 3-liter 95-horsepower race version of the RL road car that had been highly modified specifically for this event. It stood for Real Life Team Fortress. Yeah, <laughs> nice. Uh, this was also the first of many alphas to sport the Quadrofoglio, the four-leaf clover emblem, which had been painted on the car for luck. 
Luck, as it would have it, was not with Alpha that day. On the last lap and inside of the finish line, the car experienced a mechanical failure and came to a just a halt on the track. Antonio and his riding mechanic dog were out of the car. It wasn't a dog, uh, but it's fun to imagine. Uh, they were out of the car and under the hood, quickly, desperately trying to get the engine started again. After trying and failing for what must have felt like an eternity, help arrived. While sources dispute whether it was Alfa Romeo mechanics or spectators that rushed to Antonio's aid, the fact remains that several people rushed to the car and miraculously got it going again. In celebration of this tremendous team effort, Antonio set off and crossed the finish line with his helpers clinging to the side of the car. Antonio had done it. The track where he had his first crash, a track where he had been denied an overall first place and nearly denied once again, had seemingly been conquered. I love how loose racing used to be yeah. where that like people <laughs> can just run out of like a yeah. store and help you fix your car I, yeah, and then it. hang on the side of it as, as you, you cross drive. the finish line That's imagine so yeah. like some rando just like hanging on the side of max for yeah. car <laughs> i love it unfortunately joe race officials were having none of it they informed antonio that he would have to drive back to the spot where he had broken down drop off those helpers and cross the line again too many rules in if racing. he wanted to officially complete the race that's just not fun, man. No. Antonio rushed back to the scene, and just as his assistants were jumping off the car, Ugo Savocci rounded the corner in his Rolf 4.5, passed Antonio, and crossed the line. Savocci was announced as a race winner, and Antonio was awarded second place. He's the people's champ. Yes. Thankfully for Antonio, the next race at the Circuito de Cremona went significantly better. Antonio won, finishing a staggering 12 minutes ahead of second place. He would then go on to claim a second podium in 1923 with a third place finish at Mugello. I didn't realize Mugello is so old. Me neither. I mean, it kind of makes sense because the track is still very of the landscape. You yeah. know, like the hills, the rolling hills really dictate like the turns and everything. Mm -hmm. It makes sense. It's cool. I mean, it's probably a lot different these days, but I love that. That's it's awesome. one of my favorite tracks to do in the same, sim. Same. Sadly, Joe and James, tragedy would later strike in the season. On September 8th, during a practice session for the Italian Grand Prix at Monza, Ugo Savocci, the man who had encouraged a young Antonio to enter his first race, a mentor, teammate, and friend, died in a crash while driving the Alfa Romeo P1 in its first official outing. Antonio and the Alfa team were crushed. Alfa Romeo withdrew from the race and during the offseason made major car design changes in light of Savocci's death. They even pulled Vittorio Giano, one of the most respective automotive designers of the 1920s, away from Fiat to design a new car for them, one that would prove integral to Antonio's success in the coming years. On June 9, 1924, Antonio took to the track at the Circuito de Cremona in the debut race of Vittorio Giano's creation, the legendary Alfa Romeo P2. The P2 was a game-changing car that is often credited as a major leap forward in Grand Prix car design, not least of all because of its 150-horsepower, 2-liter, supercharged straight-eight engine. That's Ooh, awesome. That Gone from sick. big old cylinders to little old boys. Little cans. Little, little tiny cans. cans. Little Red Bull cans. <laughs> Eight Red Bull cans in a row. Little... Boss coffee cans. 
bunch of little Red Bull cans. <laughs> it's a bunch of little Red Bull cans all in a row. <laughs> the blower on it. It's got a <laughs> Antonio won and averaged an incredible 98.8 miles per hour over the course of the race and 129 miles per hour over the 10-kilometer speed trial. Wow. But not even an engineer like Yano could help Antonio when it came to the Targa Florio, (laughs) (laughs) where misfortune would strike again in the most unbelievable way imaginable. Misfortune would be a sick name for a World War II bomber. Misfortune? I'm sure there was one. And on the side, it's just like some pinup lady going like this. And and it's uh, like dice with snake eyes. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, she's wearing like a... She's got like a crystal ball yeah and big old hoop earrings and she's just throwing up two middle fingers like yeah. this i'll tell you right now there was a b17 called miss fortune i'm sure oh, there nice. was i'm listening i'm finishing up the last podcast mm-hmm. uh manhattan project series right mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. it's weird that we did that yeah it's not good <laughs> after getting out to a commanding lead just a few hundred yards from the finish line antonia's engine would seize Sending the car into a spin. Oh, no. He again found himself under the hood of the car, this time with riding mechanic Giulio Ramponi. A few hundred yards from the line, dude, I'd push it. Yeah, Yeah, just push it. To take a victory that was literally in sight. When all had failed, Ramponi began to push the car toward the finish line, and once again, bystanders came to Antonio's aid. They joined Ramponi in the push, but it was too late. Mercedes driver Christian Werner had rounded the corner, screamed past them, and crossed the finish line. This time, Antonio would be disqualified altogether for accepting outside. I mean, you got to learn after the first one. Dude, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Don't need help. Whatever misfortune was haunting him at Targa Florio, Antonio was cementing his status as a legend elsewhere in Italy, and no event would solidify that more than at the 1924 Italian Grand Prix. This was Antonio's homecoming. His mom was in town. The marching <laughs> band was a marching. He, he was going to ask date. Kelly to the dance. The GP was held at Monza, just outside of Antonio's adopted home of Milan. And when his Milan made P2 roared across the line in first, he had completely run the table, setting a lap record of 3 minutes 46 seconds that would stand until 1931. Wow. As Antonio shut off his engine in the pits to celebrate the victory with his team, he invited his six-year-old son, Alberto, into the pit lane to join him, and the two posed for the cameras in the winning alpha, flanked by Enzo Ferrari and Giulio Ramponi. Antonio would go on to win one more race, the 1925 inaugural Belgian Grand Prix at Spa Franconchamps. That same race that we mentioned in the opening. The 1925 French Grand Prix was held on July 26th at the Autodrome de Montferrie near Paris, just under a month after Antonio's incredible spa victory. Antonio jumped to an immediate lead that he would hold until lap 23 when his front tire clipped a fence post. Antonio was thrown from the car and fatally injured and would sadly pass away in an ambulance en route to the hospital. He was 36 years old. Motor racing had lost a legend. That's my age. I know. Antonio was buried at Cimitero Monumental in Milan four days later on July 30th, 1925. Antonio's wife, daughter, and son, Alberto, were present. It was said that a young 
Alberto Ascari clung to mechanic Julio Ramponi's hand throughout the funeral. He didn't yet know that the world of racing would not only remember his father's name for all time, but it would remember his as well. Wow. That's some foreshadowing. That's some five-shadowing. That's five-shadowing. <laughs> Alberto Ascari was born on July 13, 1918. Alberto spent much of his early life wandering the floors of the Ascari family dealership in Milan or walking the alpha pit lanes with his father. That's a fun childhood. That's cool. Alberto also had a love for, uh-oh, here comes the boss, the employees would say. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, half-day boss? <laughs> hey, got a... Uh, you said it, boss. It's like a booga. It sounds like a <laughs> junk dealer from Star Wars. He's a guy that that. The booga. Alberto also had a love for racing, but his first love was not cars, but motorcycles. Oh, Twist. half cars. Yeah, it's like a two motorcycles with a house in the middle. With the help of his mother, young Alberto purchased his first motorcycle. And what began as a hobby would quickly lead to an interest in racing professionally. Alberto would enter his first race in 1936 at the age of 18. For reasons unknown, he did not finish. He just didn't feel like it. Yeah. But Alberto wasn't discouraged. And he entered the second race only six days later at Lano. And he won. Like his father, it was apparent that Alberto had a natural talent for racing. The Bianchi motorcycle team quickly noticed him and offered him a spot on the team in 1937. I didn't know that Bianchi made motorcycles. Yeah, me neither. Alberto jumped at the chance and was a successful rider for the next three years. But however great Alberto's motorcycle racing success was, the pull to auto racing was inescapable, like a black hole. Alberto wanted to follow in his father's footsteps, and to do that, he'd turn to an old family friend. Who's it going to be? Uh, in, Mr. Friday. in December of 1939... Alberto paid a visit to one Enzo Ferrari, who had recently left his position as manager of Alfa Romeo's racing team, then known as Scuderia Ferrari. Alberto told Enzo that he wanted to compete in the upcoming Mille Miglia and asked if he would build him a car to enter. This was no small task. The Mille Miglia was scheduled for April 28th of 1940, only four months away. To complicate things even further, Enzo was barred from putting the Ferrari name on any car or racing team for four years due to a non-compete clause with Alfa Romeo. He probably could have sidestepped that with proper lawyers, right? Um, I think we talked about this in the first couple episodes of Past Gas, mm -hmm. this story, this dispute. Whether Enzo was motivated by bitter feelings towards Alfa, Maserati's recent move to Enzo's home of Modena, his connection to Alberto, or perhaps all three, is unknown. For whatever reason, he said, yes, see, see, you know, what's crazy is this is happening, happening in 1940, this is in the middle of the war. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, Hey, can you build me a car? I'm going to yeah. race this. And it's just. Enzo spending some time with uh, Benito Mussolini at the uh, party headquarters. Yeah. Uh, a detail that is kind of sidestepped in Enzo Ferrari's biography. Not really examined too hard. Four months later, Alberto pulled up to the starting line in Enzo's first car, the Otto Aveo 815 Spider, named after its 1.5-liter eight-cylinder engine. It just keeps getting tinier. I know. Hmm. They spin really fast. Zzz. Yeah, like that. Sounds Al like a spider. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know how spiders are really loud? <laughs> That's Grimace. That's not a spider. Drink my blood. <laughs> Alberto got off to an impressive start and managed to take the lead in his class before a valve seizure forced him to retire the car. Despite a good showing from Alberto and a willing manufacturer in Enzo Ferrari, the start of Alberto's car racing career would come to an abrupt halt because of a little thing called World War II. World War II. Alberto spent the duration of the war managing the Ascari family dealership in Milan, which had been conscripted to service military vehicles and running a transport business he established with a friend to supply fuel for the Italian military. By the end of the war in 1945, Alberto had married his wife, Mietta, and they had two children, Patrizia and Antonio, the latter named for his grandfather. Alberto, with his new familial responsibilities, was hesitant to return to racing. It wasn't until 1947 at the urging of fellow driver Luigi Villarossi nice. that the 29-year-old Alberto would get behind the wheel again. Villaresi was now driving for Maserati and had convinced the team to give Alberto a shot behind the wheel of the 4LCV. It didn't take long for Alberto to find his stride. Alberto took his first victory with a win at Modena in his first year and would win his first Grand Prix the very next season on September 28, 1948. That year, he would also take home a win at Pescara and two more podiums the second-place finish in the British GP behind Villaresi, and a third-place finish at the French GP. But Alberto's time in Maserati would be short-lived. He would win one more Grand Prix with Maserati in 1949 in Buenos Aires before making an in-season switch to race for Enzo Ferrari. Alberto had immediate success at Ferrari, and in his first year with the team, he took P1 at the Swiss-Italian and Buenos Aires Grand Prix. I think I got kind of numbed to Maserati as a brand. Because the past, they're like, annoying now? Over the past, like, 10 years. Because the Ghibli was, like, yeah. everywhere in L.A. for a long time. Yeah. Um, but, dude, have you guys seen the their, like, supercar, the yeah. MC20 in yeah. person? No. The MC90? This No, that's the uh, oh. this one. This oh. Oh, that's good. The new that one. sick. I saw one up in the valley, uh, like, a few months ago, and it was just... In this yellow pearlescent color, Ooh. yeah, it, it was just gorgeous. What's the, what was the like, hue though? It was almost it was uh, FFD five one five yellow with a like, nice little blue bluish pearl over the top. So it changed kind of as oh, it went around. Blue it was and yellow, really cool. Blue and yellow, blue and yellow. Shout out to the, Ukraine. Yep. So I, if I remember correctly from the Phil Hill book, Alberto Ascari had was he was very superstitious. Um, he had. This blue helmet, which is a really cool color blue. It's like a... Like a Tiffany blue. A Tiffany blue. Oh, oh, I love that. And he would also wear a matching polo shirt. Okay. Because people used to raise in polo <laughs> shirts. And uh, just cool looking dude. Cool looking dude. Want to paint a picture for the <laughs> listeners. Alberto is winning the adoration of Italy, not only for his skill on track, but for his character. He wore blue polos, blue helmet. He never let his success go to his head, where his blue helmet was. <laughs> he was known to be open and friendly and often wearing a smile as well as a blue polo and lacked the diva-esque <laughs> traits commonly associated with racing drivers both then and now. The Italian press lovingly referred to him as Ciccio or Chubby. Wow. Loving. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. I'd be like, stop. Yeah, seriously. 
we love how fat you are. But it was hard to be fat back then. It so was. It was a, you know, like, he's like, yeah, I am rich. <laughs> I am a fat. <laughs> <laughs> Ever wary of his family, Alberto also took the dangers of racing very seriously. He had a reputation for being cool and collected on the track, just like me, and not letting <laughs> the heightened emotions of a race influence his decision making. I My mean, emotions never get heightened. I think after your dad dies in a race... Uh-huh. You're probably extremely aware of like the implications of you getting injured, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. so that makes sense. Yeah, my dad died of a heart attack, and I spent years and years destroying my body. Mm-hmm. So I and guess I, you're aware of it, but it depends on how you react to yeah. the awareness. Yeah, I think you could go the other way and just be like a nutcase behind the wheel. Yeah, if your dad died, be like, it's my destiny. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's probably what I'd do. Uh, but he did the other opposite. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Observers often noted that watching Alberto race was like watching someone glide rather than drive. This characteristic smoothness could be directly attributed to, to how studious he was when it came to learning each circuit. Alberto paid careful attention to his car and other drivers during practice, diligently noting the limits of each car, the trickiest corners, and the abilities of the other drivers. He would then take his observations from this holistic data-gathered approach and use them to place safety limits upon himself, which he observed strictly. How'd that work? Alberto was, because he's like, oh, in that corner, I'll only go this fast. In this corner, I'll go, you know. I'm not going to push it. He's probably, I mean, at like a track day, just a normal track day, someone you really want to be driving with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And he's like surprised you during lunch. Like, oh, I just saved three, shaved three ten, yeah. three seconds off my time because I was talking to Alberto yeah. over my chicken Caesar, <laughs> chicken Caesar at Buttonwillow. Great salad. Alberto was perhaps equally as famous for his superstitiousness as he was for his studiousness. I told you, I warned you guys. <laughs> He carried a light blue helmet that he considered to be lucky and refused to race without it. Oh. He also avoided black cats, had a considerable amount of numbers that he deemed to be unlucky, and wouldn't let anyone handle the suitcase he carried his racing gear in. Well, that part's just practical. Right? Yeah. I don't want people messing with your stuff. But for all the precautions he took, and as kind and inviting as he was known to be, Alberto was distant and cold with his family. Mm. Wow. Enzo later said that when he asked Alberto why such a devoted family man who was so careful on the track because of his family wasn't very affectionate towards them, Alberto replied, I prefer to treat them the hard way. I don't want them to love me too much because they will suffer less if one of these days uh, I am killed. That's... Oh, Is that like a reflection of... that's? Yeah, so I'm just going to make yeah. their whole life kind of suck. Yeah. yeah. Then they will... Love the day that I die. Yeah, well, that's not better. I mean, maybe that's how he. Maybe he felt some resentment for his dad for making him love so. his dad so much. Also, if know. Enzo Ferrari's like, "Hey, man, why are you so mean to your kids?" If Enzo Ferrari's <laughs> saying yeah. that, you got a yeah. big problem. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. that's what Enzo did to his drivers. He didn't want to get super close to them because he knew they most of them would die. Yeah, but yeah. Enzo's not their kid. Yeah, yeah. Dude, um, that's so. My dad not only died when I was young; he was always really distant. Yeah. But, so, like, I'm glad. So yeah. I'm all right with it. Yeah. It's okay. Um, he died. I'm glad because you know I just like never had a f- dad. Yeah. 
That's crazy. So he was so superstitious that when he raced at Monaco, uh, and he actually popped over the harbor turn or whatever it's called, mm-hmm. he got out after like 20 seconds. He was able to get himself free. Uh, but his helmet sunk to the bottom. And then he made divers go down and grab his wow. lucky helmet. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's cool. How does helmet pop off? It was a too big for his <laughs> tiny head. His head shrunk. Yeah, it was lucky. Yeah. yeah, it was so cold. He went to a therapist before the night before. So oh, nice. Dude. Nice. We'll get back to more past gas. But right now, a word from our sponsors. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 1950 was the first year that the Grand Prix racing structure that had been around since the early 1900s was officially titled Formula One. 1950 was also the first year of the Drivers' Championship, which would take place over seven races, including the optional but points-paying Indy 500. In this inaugural year, Alberto finished fifth overall with impressive second-place finishes at Monaco and Monza. In 51, Alberto climbed the ranks, finishing second overall with wins at the German and Italian Grand Prix and second place finishes at the Belgian and French Grand Prix. This sounds so familiar. Alberto's remarkable season was only a taste of what was to come as he was about to embark on an era of unprecedented dominance and set himself a path to F1 immortality. Sick. On June 22nd, 1952... Alberto made his European debut at the second race of the calendar, the Belgian Grand Prix, after missing the opening race in Switzerland to qualify for the Indy 500. Behind the wheel of a Ferrari 500 F2, in the footsteps his father laid 27 years earlier, he took the checkered flag. Alberto would go on to win every Grand Prix race he entered that year and secured his first driver's championship. That's nuts. Batting a thousand. That's insane. As they say in racing, he's batting a thousand. Yeah, he was the first, and to this day, the only Italian to ever win the title with Ferrari. That's surprising. That's very surprising. Alberto extended his winning streak with the first race of the 1953 season in Argentina and then won a staggering seven races in a row. This record wasn't met until 2004 by one Michael Schumacher or beaten until Sebastian Vettel won nine races in a row in 2013. Wow. Official F1 records use Alberto's absence from the 1953 Indy 500, a race several drivers of the era skipped out on altogether as the official end of this winning streak. However, Alberto would win the next two races at the Dutch and Belgian Grand Prix, leading some people to argue that Alberto's official win streak should stand at nine alongside Vettel, which I kind of agree with. Yeah, right? Yeah, because... Yeah. Uh, I mean, Everybody dropped out. Yeah. If you talk to Liz Blackstock, co-host of Donut Racing Show, you know, she'll tell you all about how it did count, mm-hmm. the Indy 500, but, like, basically no Europeans ever did it. Right. Um, which is why I think it should be nine. Yeah. You know? I'm kind not of going over there with those Hoosiers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like a, uh, it's like a, like a, um, like a, um, you know. Yeah. 
totally. It's like a metaphor. No, like uh, 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 exhibition. Yes, oh, okay. yes, it should be treated as. Oh. In six of those nine races, Alberto also claimed the pole position in qualifying as well as the fastest lap. So he was on a freaking roll. This dude was really good. Duh. That's why we're doing a freaking episode about him. Basically why we're doing an episode on him. If you haven't caught up, get a clue. Why don't get you a clue. get a clue, dude? Why don't you? Here's a dollar. Buy you a try clue. to crack a book sometime. Get a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I used to Venmo people a dollar, and, and then the me. note would be like, "Buy yourself a clue." <laughs> 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 <Pretty good> bit. <laughs> While Alberto Ascari's Ferrari was certainly the best car on the grid, he wasn't without competition. In identical Ferraris were teammates Nino Farina, the first official F1 champion. Nino Farina. That's a panini sandwich you panina, make with panina flour. Farina. And uh, also the guy named Mike Hawthorne, another future world champion. In the 1953 season, Alberto also had to contend with future five-time champion Juan Manuel Fangio. I know that name. So it's a pretty stacked freaking stacked, grid right now. Okay? stacked. Despite the heavy competition, Alberto would go on to win the British and Swiss Grand Prix in 53 to secure his second Drivers' Championship, becoming Formula One's first two-time champ and its first back-to-back champion. In 1954, coming off two incredible seasons, Alberto made the decision to switch teams to Lancia. Hmm. Alberto admitted the move was purely financial, stating that his income with Lancia was more than Ferrari was willing to pay. Unfortunately, Alberto wouldn't get a chance to defend his titles in 1954, as he was sidelined for the, most of the season because Lancia's D50 wasn't, quote, race ready. Hmm. That sucks. <laughs> you quit, and then they're like, eh, actually, the car's not ready. <laughs> Why didn't you tell me earlier? Alberto entered only five races that year, each with a DNF due to mechanical failure. Hmm. Lancia's reliability woes continued into the start of the 1955 season when Alberto retired from the season opener in Argentina. But at the next race in Monaco, it looked as if Lancia had finally sorted out their problems and that Alberto might once again be a contender for the title. Alberto had taken the lead, but on lap 81, the unexpected happened. Just as he was about to take the chicane adjacent to the water, Alberto lost control. This and that's the end of our talking. podcast for today. Everything was great with him. <laughs> Unable to stop, he flew off the edge of the track at an estimated 110 miles per hour and landed in the Mediterranean Sea. Everyone in attendance was shocked and waited with bated breath as divers rushed to go in after him. After an intense 30 seconds, Alberto emerged from the water, blue helmet first, among the oil and bubbles marking the spot where his car had gone in. The divers assisted Alberto in getting to shore, where he was treated in a local hospital for broken nodes, bruises, and shock. That's crazy. Well, I dude. guess that story that I told was a little bit wrong. That uh, was maybe another driver that did that. No, I remember his blue helmet. Maybe mm. it's a different time he lost his blue helmet. In maybe water. the. Maybe the writer took liberties and was like, blue helmet first. Yeah. But also, now that I'm thinking about it, a helmet would probably float. <laughs> yeah, probably. So. No, maybe. back then. Yeah, it might just be like yeah. leather and <laughs> metal. And yeah. Rocks. Make the helmet out of rocks. It's the lightest material we have. <laughs> <laughs> Four days after his brush with death, 
Alberto traveled to Monza to watch Eugenio Castelletti test the Ferrari that the two were going to share in an upcoming endurance race. Castelletti was surprised to see Alberto's trackside after he just escaped the traumatic crash and was even more surprised when the injured and characteristically cautious Alberto asked to test drive the car himself. Mm. Perhaps his crash at Monaco had shaken his faith in his cautious, superstitious ways, or perhaps he wanted to make sure he hadn't lost his nerve. We can only imagine what might have been going through his head when Alberto climbed into the car in the suit and tie he had arrived on the track in, put on Castellotti's white racing helmet, and took off. Oh, yeah. That's why I said, oh, like 15 minutes ago when you said he was very superstitious about his helmet. I remembered how this... Yeah. yeah. I was five-shadowing. All was fine until lap three. With Alberto out of sight, the testing attendees heard the sounds of screeching tires, crunching metal, and the Ferrari's engine go quiet. They rushed to the other side of the track to find a horrific crash scene. Alberto had been ejected from the car and would die just minutes later. It was later determined that the car had skidded, turned up on its nose, and somersaulted Jeez. twice. But the cause still remains shrouded in mystery. Very there was an outpouring of grief in Italy at the news of Alberto's death. He was a national hero. At his funeral in Plaza del Duomo in Milan, it was said to be so quiet in what was normally one of the noisiest places in the city that telephones could be heard ringing in empty apartments nearby. At Monza, the curve where Alberto crashed, the Curva del Violone, was renamed Variante Ascari in his honor. Bummer. Antonio and Alberto Ascari both left their mark on the world of racing. Antonio Ascari was a racing pioneer who didn't so much compete with his contemporaries as he did show them what was possible. His unmatched pace and commanding leads forced other drivers and teams to push their technology and their nerves further and faster than they may have ever dared otherwise, laying the groundwork for modern racing where tenths of seconds can mean the difference between podium finishes and financial survival. Alberto Ascari built upon his father's legacy and became a legend in his own right. Ciccio's observant and studious practices and smooth driving style laid the blueprint for grid dominance, the echoes of which can be seen in today's highly methodical Formula One paddocks. In an era overflowing with driving greatness, Alberto became the sport's first two-time champion, back-to-back champion, and as of 2023, Ferrari's first and only Italian champion. That's still crazy to me. Mm -hmm. I know. Antonio and Alberto Ascari's lives also played out in simultaneously glorious and tragic near-mirror images of one another. They both won 13 Grand Prix and then died at age 36, attempting a left-hand turn before losing control and getting thrown from their cars. They also both left behind a wife and two children. I think it was like... They were like three weeks oh, like difference the of the same age, too. Like oh, wow. 36 and however many days. Or something. Antonio yeah. and Alberto helped begin a cycle that carries on to this day. A cycle of inspiring younger generations to sit behind the wheel. Mario Andretti credits Alberto for fueling his desire to start racing. Once saying, he was the best, no question. He was winning. And that's what really attracted me to him. Now I'm going to put on these purple underpants and show them to James. <laughs> I was like, when's it going when, to yeah, happen? I've seen Mario Andretti yep. in his underpants. 
purple briefs. And this is the true legacy of the Ascaris. To have started and perpetuated a cycle of pushing boundaries, achieving greatness, and inspiring a new generation of drivers to go out and do the same. From Antonio to Alberto, Alberto to Andretti, Andretti to Schumacher, Schumacher to Hamilton and Verstappen, and the generation of drivers they will inevitably inspire. It all began with a family from Milan. Wow. Great wow. story. Great sad story. story. Sad story. Cool story. We've got uh, we got some listener mail this week. Would you rather oh, live till Norway. 90 and not be mem- remembered or die at 36 and be a legend? Uh, 90. 100%. 90. I think there's positives and negatives to both. Anyway. Uh, hello. I'm a longtime listener and fan of Donut and Past Gas. In your replay of the Drunken Lamont episode, you guys mentioned that having a bar on a Navy ship was probably an old school thing. But as a Norwegian myself, I can confirm that the Navy still has bars on their ships and also shops to buy cigarettes and alcohol. And they also have gaming rooms with PS5. Nice. That sounds like the army I want to be in. Yeah, I'll be in that Navy smoke cigs. Play games. (laughs) Play games. (laughs) Be on a boat. Be on a boat. Love the show. I wish I could say more, but I'm currently at work, so that will be all. Best regards, Marcus from Norway. Well, thank Thank you so much, Marcus Marcus from Norway. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, hit us up at pascas at donutmedia.com. Maybe we'll read your email on air. Especially if it has to do with being on a boat with with boats and smoking cigs. Again, we have uh, Pascas merch for the first time. We got a shirt, uh, Wink Wink Nation. With not a Miata on it. We have posters with the same design, all kinds of stickers, really cool stuff. Go to donutmedia.com. We also have a bunch of just straight up donut merch that uh, we're really proud of and yeah, we work yeah. really, really hard on. Good stuff. Uh, follow Nolan on social media at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at James Pumphrey. You can find us all on threads. Yeah, man. <laughs> We're going to be posting motivational Mad workout quotes all day. Workout blue sky. Yeah, blue sky, baby. Uh, all right. I love you. Bye. <laughs>